following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, we are through November. We're looking at some psalms, some selected psalms. And uh, part of what I'm wanting to do in this, in this short little series is, is give us a sense of the diversity of expression that's in this book called the Psalms, um, so that these can hopefully become words that we can say and pray and use to worship God in every season of life, um, in whatever kind of headspace we're in and whatever experience it is, because there's such, there is such diversity there. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a Psalm of praise, and then last week, those of you lucky enough to be here, we went to the depths the depths of despair. We looked at lamenting, and hopefully some of you have had a chance to, in a, in a good way, uh, lament and learn to lament biblically. That's a good thing. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to look at something different again. We're going to be in Psalm 2 this morning. Uh, Logan, I think, is going to come read that for us. You round, Logan Warner. Come on up. And uh, Psalm 2, uh, maybe as Logan's reading this, you can try and think and guess what category of psalm this might be. Thanks, Logan. You want to use that microphone there? Thank you. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together um, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thanks, Logan. Great job. Okay, now this past week, I'm sure you all know, was the birthday of our new king, King Charles. Did you know that? Did you all write him a card? It was, it was his actual birthday this last Monday, and of course we here in New Zealand will celebrate his birthday next year in June on our first King's birthday weekend. That's going to be strange, isn't it? We're all going to have to get used to that. But I thought, I didn't even plan this, but it was very appropriate, I thought, that in view of Charles's birthday this week, that this morning we are looking at a royal psalm. Isn't that great? God knew what he was doing. So that's what this psalm is, Psalm 2. It's part of a group of psalms that are called royal psalms. There's a number of them in the book. And these are psalms that talk about the king, not Charles, but the king of Israel. And they, they honor the king, and they talk about the king's attributes, and they talk about uh, how powerful he is. Some of them talk about the relationship between the king and his people. Some of them talk about the relationship between God and the king. Uh, and it's, I think the problem and the challenge for us is that when we think about the king, the first name and face that pops into our mind is this guy, 
Right? And so what we can tend to do, and we do this a lot with the Bible, is we can take our modern understandings of things and we can read them back into Scripture as if what the uh, Israelites knew as a king is the same as what we know of as a king today. And in reality, there is a vast, vast difference between King Charles and the kings of the Old Testament. So what we've got to try and do here is put aside our own modern notions of what a king is and our experience of a king in the British Commonwealth and, and let this text tell us what a king was and who a king is in the biblical sense and let this passage shape our understanding of the significance of the king in the biblical story and for our lives today. Can we do that? Letting this passage give us a sense of what real royalty is about. Okay, so let's jump in here. Psalm 2, at the beginning of the psalm, the kind of situation that's going on here in the first three verses is you've got these other kings of the earth outside of Israel, other kings of the earth who are conspiring against Israel's king. The nations are raging, the nations are plotting, the nations are trying to uh, throw off the shackles of Israel's king. And so the the kind of historical situation that we're talking about here is this was probably under the reign of King David. And during David's reign, uh, he conquered many other nations and many other peoples around Israel, right? Fought these battles and he would win battles and conquer nations like the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Vegemites and the Amorites and all of these other nations. So just seeing if you're awake there, right? And he would have all these battles and he would expand Israel's territory and these other nations would be subservient to Israel. And so you've got the situation now where these other conquered kings are kind of getting together and saying, we've got to get rid of this Israel king. We've got to throw off the shackles. We don't want to be under his reign. We don't want to be under Israel's rule. We want to have our freedom. We want to have our independence. So they're raging against the king of Israel. They're raging against Israel's king. Now, just know in passing, look at the way that the king of Israel is referred to there in verse uh, 2. Uh, The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, that word anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah, right? Most of you know that word, Messiah. And it means the one who is anointed by God. Uh, Literally, the kings would be anointed. They they would have oil poured on their head uh, in this anointing, a sign of God establishing them in that role, God establishing them in that position. And, and placing them in authority over the people of Israel. And so this is the anointed king. When you, when you hear that word Messiah, thanks Colin, when you hear that word Messiah, the first thing you should think is king, right? That's, that's the original meaning that it had, right? That's going to be important for later on. So the king was the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. Now, So all these these nations are raging against Israel's king. And then in verse uh, 4, you have God's response to this. How does God respond to all these nations shaking their fist at him? He laughs. Look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He just has a chuckle. It It almost feels a bit callous. You know, all these hostile nations there, and they're all plotting against the king. And it's like God just kind of looks up and just has a bit of a laugh and then goes back to his flat white. It's just this very sort of, he just doesn't care. 
Like he's, he is not at all concerned. All these puny little kings shaking their fist at him and his king. God is not in the least bit concerned. His power is infinitely beyond anything. They can, they can muster up. It's like an ant trying to take on an elephant. It's just laughable. And I, again, I think in passing, it's good for us to remember, like you think of our world today, there's a lot of people that shake their fist at Christians and there's hostility against the Christian faith, hostility against the church, hostility against Christianity. And we can all be very unnerved by that, can't we? We can feel unsettled. We can feel insecure. We can all know someone said something. Someone's had a go at the Christian faith. Oh, someone's written something hostile against Christianity. Just remember when that stuff happens, what's God doing? He's having a good laugh. He, he's not worried like we are about that. He's just sitting in heaven. He's not mean. He's not, doing, he's not being cruel, but he's just laughing because it, all of that is no threat to God's throne, is it? All of that is no threat to God's power. All of the raging of people and the hostility and even the antagonism. I know it doesn't feel nice, but none of that ultimately threatens the true king on the true throne, right? Maybe that's just helpful to remember that sometimes the best thing to do is just laugh because that's what God's doing. Okay, so that's God's response. And then in verse six, now these are the only words God speaks in this psalm. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So Zion is the hill where the city of Jerusalem is built, and that's where Israel's king would reign from. Although, if you were here for the royal series, some of you, you will remember that at a certain point, Israel's kingdom broke in half. And so you have these kings that were reigning up in the north as well as in the south. And that's, this tells us that the focus of this psalm is on the Davidic king. It's on the, the king uh, that came from David's line. David and his descendants. That was the line of promise. That was the line of covenant. Those were the kings that God was focused on bringing his promises about through David and his descendants. Uh, those promises that David's throne would be eternal. David's kingdom would be eternal. That's the kingdom that's in view here. And so those kings, they, they, were, just, they were just human beings like us, but they carried the weight of God's authority. They carried the weight of God's promises, which makes it all the more tragic when they completely derailed themselves and became totally faithless towards God because they were his representatives. They were the ones that God rules through his king. God leads through his king. And when those kings walk away from God, that's the worst case scenario. That's why the history of the kings is so tragic. They were supposed to be God's representatives. And so many of them ended up walking away. Not all of them, but many of them. Then in verse 7, 8, and 9, the voice in the psalm shifts, and now you hear the king speaking. So this is the voice of the king himself, and you kind of get an insight into uh, where, where he sits in this whole picture. So the king speaks, and in verse 7, he said to me, so that's God, he, God said to me, the king, you are my son, today I have become your father. If you say that in a Darth Vader voice, it sounds really good. Uh, so this relationship between the king and God was incredibly close. It was like the relationship between a father and a son. That's how God saw it. God the father and the king was like his son. There, there was that 
intimacy there. There was that bond. Again, you, some of you, your mind's already thinking down to the New Testament, just hold on. But in the Old Testament, that's how it was. The king was the son of God, this father. And God makes these promises to the king here. And he says in verse 8, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So God is saying to this king here, to Israel's king, I'm going to give you all the nations. You're going to reign over every nation. I'm going to give you to the ends of the earth. It'll all be your, your possession. Uh, and again, some of you that know some of the Old Testament story, you might have a question at this point, which is, did this ever actually happen? Like, did any Old Testament king ever get this? God's promising them. You're going to rule over the nations. You're going to rule over the earth. Did that ever historically happen? And the answer is no, it didn't. There was no king of Israel who ever received this promise. There was no king of Israel. I mean, they, they got some territory under David and under Solomon. Their territory certainly expanded. But no king of Israel ever ruled all the nations. No king of Israel ever possessed the whole earth. In fact, as you trace the story along, what you see is that Everything moves in the opposite direction. That these kings became more and more unfaithful to God and their territory shrunk until you get to the point that Israel is exiled and the kings are taken captive and they're expelled from their land. It's, it's the opposite of what Psalm 2 is describing. Rather than breaking the nations, these kings become broken by the nations. Rather than possessing the earth, these kings become scattered throughout the earth. And Israel gets sent off into exile. And just think, when the Israelites were sitting there in the middle of their exile, away from their land, with the monarchy in ruins, no more king in Israel, and they're sitting there in Babylon, imagine them reading Psalm 2 and thinking, what on earth has happened to this? What has happened to these promises? What happened to the king being the son of God, the father? What happened to the nations as your inheritance? What happened to the ends of the earth as your position? None of that. That's all just in tatters now. In the middle of the exile, this must have just seemed like a broken promise, like a lost dream. And yet, as Israel comes back from their exile, and there's this renewed sense of hope, that maybe God is going to do something new. Maybe these promises are still going to be fulfilled. Maybe the psalm was not just talking about the old kings. Maybe there's a new king. Maybe God's got another trick up his sleeve yet. Maybe he's got one more great move. Maybe there's a new king who will come and sit on the throne and will finally fulfill all that Psalm 2 promised us. That is the kind of expectation that hangs in the air at the end of the Old Testament. This kind of anticipation, this kind of expectation. Seems like broken promises, but maybe there's another, another season. Maybe there's another king who's going to come. And so then you come to the New Testament, and you come to the Gospels, and you come to that night out on the fields of Bethlehem where the angels appeared to a little group of shepherds and they said to him, we bring you good news of great joy. Today in the town of David, notice the reference, town of David, a savior has been born and he is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, if you've read Psalm 2, you know what's going on here. This is not just a king. This is not just a special child who's being born. This is the king. 
This is the true king of Israel and the whole world coming now into the world to take his rightful place and his rightful throne. The angels are basically saying, everything that you read about back in Psalm 2, it's happening. It's coming true. All of those expectations, all of those hopes, all of those longings, all of those, we don't know what happened to these kings, but we're longing for a new king. All of that is being fulfilled now right before your eyes. And this little baby who's born in Bethlehem in in an animal barn, this is coming true now. Psalm 2 is finally coming about. So, We can see now, we can look back at this psalm as Christians and we can see Jesus comes, Jesus of Nazareth comes as the fulfillment of what this psalm points towards. In other words, this is not just a royal psalm. It is a messianic psalm. Are you excited about that? A messianic psalm that points towards Jesus. Doesn't just point backwards, it points forwards. This is our conviction as Christians that we can look at the psalm now and we can see Jesus all through it. If you were sitting in a synagogue this morning, you would hear an exposition of Psalm 2 that would talk all around the kings of Israel and God perhaps is the ultimate king, but we don't sit in a synagogue, we sit in a church and we can see in the middle of this Psalm the crucified and risen Jesus who is the fulfillment of these words. And as you look through the Psalm, you can see the way. All the way through now, Jesus fulfills everything that was written. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one truly anointed by the Father, anointed and empowered at his baptism, anointed by the Spirit, anointed for the work of establishing the kingdom of God. So he fulfills that role. Jesus is the true son. You know, when the king says, God is the father and he's become the father and I'm the the son, that is true now of Jesus. What did the father say at the baptism of Jesus? This is my son, right? with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is the Son, God is the Father, in a true, deep, rich, essential way. The true eternal Son of the true eternal Father. Jesus is the one to whom God made these promises to give all authority, to give the nations, to give the ends of the earth. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Jesus had far more authority than any Old Testament king ever had. He's not just king of a nation. He's not just king of a piece of dirt. He's king over all nations. He's king of the whole world. He is king, the one true rightful king of the entire universe. Gary, say amen. Amen. This is who Jesus is. This is worth celebrating, isn't it? He is the one true and rightful king. King of kings. Lord of lords. Man, I was at the... um, Auckland prayer breakfast this week and there were I don't know maybe 500 Christians there from it was just right across the whole spectrum every denomination every tradition that was every kind of Christian you know and then probably some after that and we're all there just with this heart for unity and this heart to pray for our city just pray for Tamaki Makoto and um, before we got into prayer we all stood and we sung a couple of worship songs and we sung this really old school one that some of you know called Majesty some of you remember that? that? They must have chosen it because everybody knows it. And it was just this awesome experience of standing there in just a room, a huge room full of people just singing majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, power, and praise. Beautiful words, majesty, kingdom authority flows from his throne unto his own. His anthem raise. 
So exalt and lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify, come glorify the King of all kings. Those are the kinds of words we should be saying. That's the kind of worship we should be giving, isn't it? That's who we're here to celebrate this morning, isn't it? Is that why you came to church or is there some other reason? <laughs> when we sit here and we're just kind of ho-hum, uh, you know, meh, can't be bothered, don't like the songs, not my favorite key, whatever. What is this saying about the king of kings that we are here to worship? It's not about the songs. It's about the person of Jesus being exalted and his name lifted up. He is the king of kings. These words are the vehicle that we can use to do that. This music is the means that we can use, one of many. But the point is to lift up our eyes and focus on the glory and the majesty and the supremacy and the beauty of Jesus as our king. That's what our lives are about. That's what our church is about. So, slowly waking up, that's what the psalm is about. How do we respond to Jesus? How do we respond to this king? Psalm 2 tells us, in verse 10 to 12, we have some pretty sobering words. These words are a warning. They're warning to other kings, but I think we can hear them as a warning to us. And so it's not comfortable, but it says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. So we are called to approach God with fear and trembling. Now, that doesn't mean being scared of God. That doesn't, if some of you have never heard this before, please, that doesn't mean that you are supposed to kind of cower before God like he's some kind of bully. That is the opposite of the gospel we believe. That is the opposite of grace, which gives us permission to approach God's throne with confidence. But even as we approach God with confidence because of his grace, we still remember who he is, right? We still, just take a second before you pray, just to think about who it is you are addressing the king of kings who sits on the throne of the universe, or as scripture says, the immortal, untouchable God who dwells in unapproachable light, who no eye has seen or ever can see. To him be glory and honor. That's our God, and we just need to check ourselves before waltzing so casually into his presence and being callous about that. Now, please hold this together with what I was saying last week around the freedom that we have to pour out our hearts to God. Absolutely. This doesn't take anything away from that. But as we pour out our hearts to God, we still remember that he's the king of kings. So to fear God means simply to have reverence in the presence of holiness. To have reverence, to have a sense of trembling, not being afraid, but just holy respect to honor to remember who God is and who we are in his presence. I love that little dialogue in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, where the children are talking to Mr. Beaver, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, about Aslan. And, of course, Aslan represents Jesus in that allegory. And uh, Susan, I think it is, says to Mr. Beaver, uh, she finds out that he's a lion, and she says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course, he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That is a beautiful picture of Jesus. Don't ever think that God is safe. He is not safe. The Bible describes him as a consuming fire. He holds the power of life and death 
and eternity in his hands. He is not safe, but thank God he is very, very good. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, he has shown us just how good he is, that he loves you and he is so compassionate towards you and he is so tender with you. He is so good. But please keep those things together in your mind. He is good, but he's not safe. So he's the king and we reverence his holy presence. But we also approach him with confidence because he is so unbelievably good, isn't he? Okay, last thing that this psalm calls us to do, and this is the, the weirdest sentence in the psalm. In verse 11, uh, 12, sorry, kiss his son. That's a little bit uncomfortable. What's the, why is there kissing in the Bible? Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction. What is this idea of kissing the son? Well, again, the son is the king in this psalm. So we're talking about the king. And in ancient times, people would kiss the, the ring or the finger or the hand of the king. And this would be a sign of respect and it would be a sign of worship. And when you think about Jesus as the true king, did you know there is a time in the gospels when this literally happened? Some of you remember the story? Know the story? Jesus goes for dinner in the home of a Pharisee. And as he's sitting there, who comes in the door? This woman. She's called an immoral woman. She was probably a prostitute. She comes in the door and she has this expensive jar of perfume and she just breaks it and tips it out over the feet of Jesus, just pours it extravagantly onto his feet. And she's crying and she's wetting his feet with her tears and she's drying it with her hair. And I wonder if in that moment, Jesus thought, this is Psalm 2. Kissed the son. She's kissing his feet. The text tells us she kissed his feet. Here's the king of kings in, in humility, but the king of kings. And here is a broken woman kissing the feet of the son. That's worship. One of the richest, maybe most uncomfortable, but profound pictures in scripture of what worship looks like. And that is our response to this king, isn't it? That's what it means for us to kiss the feet of the son, to kiss the son. It's not comfortable language, but what it means is to take the posture of that woman. And what is she doing in that moment? She's doing a lot of things. She's confessing. She's, just, she's a broken woman, and she's just pouring out her heart, and she's just there, just open and undone before Jesus. That's what we are called to be. As we worship Jesus, the king, we're just called to confess our sin and be open and undone in his presence, just bringing our brokenness can't hide it anyway. He sees it all. He knows exactly what's going on in your heart this morning. You can hide it from the person next to you. You can't hide it from Jesus. He knows it and sees it. And our worship is to say, Jesus, this is who I am. I'm so broken. So broken, God. Reminded of it every day. And we just bring that as part of our worship to say, God, I just own up to who I am before you in all my sin and my selfishness and the mess that I keep making and the stuff I keep going back to time after time after time. And that's our worship. And then that becomes adoration as we receive God's forgiveness and we say, thank you, Jesus, that your mercy is so free and it just fills our lives and just covers us so immensely. And then worship turns into surrender as she just gives her life back into the hands of Jesus. And that's our response too, is to surrender our lives into the hands of Jesus. That's what he requires of us. That's what he asks of us, that we bring all of who we are and we say, Jesus, I'm yours. My life is, is laid down, and it's in your hands, and I give it to you. 
That's our response to Jesus, the King of Kings. And I just want to encourage you. I want to ask you just to think in your own heart, your own life this morning, what does that posture of surrender look like for you? Some of you, you surrendered years ago when you became a Christian, and you haven't thought about that since. You're just getting on with life now. And it's just like, yeah, I have a faith, but does it make any difference day to day? And Jesus is here today. And he's saying, I want you to come before me like that woman today. That's not comfortable for you, is it? It's jarring. Jesus is saying, I want you to be like that woman today. I want you to come and pour your life out and lay your life down. And I want you to surrender everything to me. For some of you, it's surrendering things where you just, there's something in your life right now that's not handed over to God. There's something you just, you're just playing with it. And you're just mucking around with something and you just can't keep on going back to something. There's some area in your life, some habit, some addiction, whatever it is, and you just keep on going back to it. Today is a day Jesus is saying to you, I want you to surrender that to me. We're done with that. We're finished with that. I want you to lay that down. That is crucified now. I want you to move away by the grace and power of God to move away from and past that thing today and surrender it over to Jesus. Some of you, there's just an area of your life that's always been off limits to God. There's just some little box there. Everything else is good. Jesus, you can have it all. I surrender all except this. I surrender everything, Jesus, but not this here. You're still attached to something. You're still grasping onto something. And you're not prepared to let it go yet. Your heart is still just locked on to something that's not God. And there's something you have not fully given up. The Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. There's some of you who know what I'm talking about. And as the Holy Spirit presses his finger on your heart, Jesus is saying to you this morning, I want you to lay that down. Because he's the king. And he asks you to come as that woman came. In brokenness and surrender everything. Not some things. Not 90%. Not that'll be good enough. Not what everyone else sees. Everything. What is in the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart. Jesus is saying today, I want that want that thing, the thing that you've locked away. Everyone else just thinks it's such a good put-together Christian life. Jesus is saying there's that thing, there's that area, there's that darkness. And I want you to bring that today. That's our response to Jesus. It is not just standing here and singing nice Christian worship songs. That is part of our worship. But it's the surrender and the submission to the holy presence of Jesus that just breaks us and leads us to say, God, I'm just, I'm undone. Totally exposed, nowhere to hide, nothing else to do, can't run away. And so I give everything to you. Please don't just say it as a glib statement. I surrender all. I give you everything. Please think about what that means. Please search your own heart. Let the Spirit search your own heart and show you what it means to truly surrender to Jesus as King, your King today. So as we think about the psalm, we step back from this beautiful picture that we have of God as our king, Jesus as our king. There's a sense of conviction here, isn't there? A sense that God's doing some work among us today and how we respond to that king in our lives. Just as we're kind of learning to be citizens of the British Commonwealth again with a new king, we've got to learn what it means to be citizens of the heavenly commonwealth and to really have Jesus as our king, not just with our lips, but with our lives. And I pray that today would be a day where we could, as a church and in our mind's eye, lift up the name of Jesus and declare him to be who he truly is, King of kings and Lord of lords, that we'd celebrate that. That should be incredibly reassuring for us to know that in this chaotic world and these chaotic lives, he's on the throne. We can live under his kingship 
because he's a good king. And we long for the second coming of this king. That's where Advent's going to take us. We long for his appearing and we long for his glory. And let's learn to bring ourselves into submission to this king, like that woman came to the feet of Jesus. And let's learn to confess freely before Jesus. Let's learn to bring everything, all of the brokenness and the mess in our lives, in our families, in our situations, bringing it all to him. Let's learn to adore him in a, in a way that's uninhibited as that woman was, not ashamed, not inhibited, but just, Jesus, I just, I love you. I adore you. I worship you. And let's surrender all of our lives, especially the hardest things to let go of. They are the very things Jesus is putting his finger on this morning. May we in our lives learn to lift up and love and serve our King, the Messiah, King Jesus, Lord above all lords, majesty, name above all names, the King of kings, the King who's not safe, but he is very, very good. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. You are here. King Jesus. Just now, God, I just, I just feel led to, to lift up and praise and exalt your name. Jesus, you are our king. And whether or not we say it, you are still the king. Nothing we do will change it, God. Whether or not we submit to you, you are still the king. You've established your kingdom on this earth through your birth and your life and your death and your resurrection and your ascension. And we thank you this morning. You're the king of kings. Thank you, God, for that reality. God, those of us that are just not moved by this, would you move our hearts? Those of us, God, that just don't care enough about this, would you make us care? God, would you just stir our hearts? God, those of us that have taken you for granted and heard these things a hundred times, would you just reawaken us to the, the power of seeing you, Jesus, as the eternal King? And God, would you show us in our lives what it means to live with you and live under your loving reign? Um, Lord God, make it real for us as we walk out of here this morning, that we would just live with that sense of we're living under King Jesus. And show us what it means to approach you, God, with love and with confession and with brokenness and with surrender. Holy Spirit, I just believe you're moving this morning in, in the hearts and minds of your people here and just pressing, pressing on some hearts and pressing on some minds and just doing your good and quiet work. And we just want to, want to say, come Holy Spirit, just come and press your word on the hearts of your people and bring the conviction where that needs to come. And bring the freedom, God, as we move into the life that you've called us to, living in the freedom of your rule. Thank you, God, that you are so, so good. It's in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, that we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.